All right, if you um, have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 9 through to 11. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through to 11. And if you are able, uh, if you would stand with me as we read together. Revelation chapter 1, uh, beginning to read in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Let's pray. Lord, your communication to us is uh, so vital and so important. We have this communication coming from our own minds and from our own selfish desires that just continues on and on. You tell us to deny that every single day. Then we've got the messages of the world that keeps coming in from around us, and we know that Satan is in control of the power of this world. And so what we have uh, in, in, in competition with that is your word. We have your spirit within us. We're grateful to you for that. But you've also given us your word to confront that so that we think the way you want us to think and to be changed the way you want us to be changed. And so, Lord, as a community of believers, we humble ourselves now before your word as if you're speaking directly to us. This is your truth. This is your word. And it's meant, it's meant to transform us. And so, as your sons and your daughters, with pleasure, we open it up. And so now we ask that you would teach us, lead and guide us into your truth. And as we said earlier, Lord, I pray that we'd be able to put some of these uh, extra pressures that maybe we've brought in this morning, we put them off to the side so that we can hear from you from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So last week, uh, we began uh, looking at Revelation as a two-part introduction to the book. And we were looking at the literary genre of Revelation, and we noted that Revelation is not meant to be taken uh, literally. Uh, quite often, and most often, it's meant to be taken in a visionary prophecy kind of way. This is the way in which John is communicating. And visionary prophecy, as we noted last week, is meant to communicate truth, yes, but through metaphors and through analogies and through similes. This is the way that John wrote Revelation. But why did he write it, and who did he write it to? Yes, of course, the genre of the literature is important. But equally important is who wrote it and why he wrote it. I know this is no newsflash to you, but the book of Revelation was not written to 20th, 21st century Christians. The truth is in here, but it wasn't written directly to you. It was written to a local band of seven churches located in a small region, region of what we know as modern-day Turkey. 
And these seven churches were lumped together inside about a 20, a 200 rather uh, kilometer radius. And I think we have a picture here, a slide to show you. You can see there the, the group of churches that are all together. And these group of churches are, are separated by about 200 kilometers. All seven churches are there. So some of them are probably close within about 30 kilometers. Most are within 30 kilometers of each other. Uh, but from the furthest, um, from the closest to the furthest away would have been about 200 kilometers. So maybe from here to somewhere in between uh, Red Deer and Edmonton, that kind of a radius. So it's a, it's a fairly close radius. You'll notice on there also this island of Patmos, I think it's written in pink there on the bottom, uh, and this island of Patmos, this is where John is. This is where John right now has been, has been located. So that's the Mediterranean Sea, as you see it there, there's Greece. You can see Rome off to the side, uh, which will become important as we, as we work through it here. But this is where the seven churches are, were located, all in a similar region, all about 200 kilometers apart, and uh, all therefore were, were sharing this uh, similar kind of cultural and uh, religious social cl uh, climate. So, um, this is important for us to understand that John's writing to a group of churches, all um, pretty close together. Uh, you don't have to put it up there anymore. Uh, if we keep it up, they'll keep distracted, as uh, we all are distracted by those kinds of things. But these churches, um, again, they, they were close, uh, so they would have shared similar culture, uh, but they also shared the same social-religious uh, context. Now, of the seven churches, we really don't know much about them. We know a little bit more about Laodicea. Um, but of, of the seven churches, we, we know most about Ephesus. And Ephesus was a church that, at the time John is writing here, had existed for about 30 years. So it was a fairly mature church. Uh, we as a church, uh, Pine Ridge, uh, we've existed for about 17 years. And I think after about, uh, after about seven or eight years, they didn't call us a church plant anymore. We probably should have been called that earlier. Um, but after the seven or eight years, we were called a mature church, and we went on. And so now, 17 years later, you would call us a mature church. This church was about, the Ephesus church was about 30 years in. So it's a fairly mature church. Um, we can, we can assume, uh, by the way, that John writes, uh, the way in which he writes to the other six churches, that these churches were probably also well on their way as mature churches. But the context, or the religious context, or the social context of this group um, was one of tribulation. And we pick it up in verse uh, 8 of chapter 1, or rather verse 9. I, John, your brother, and listen to this, and fellow partaker in tribulation. Fellow, equal. Fellow partaker, as he's writing to the seven churches, I'm a fellow partaker in the tribulation, as you are, and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. Why was he there? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. All of these churches, and John included, were in the midst of, uh, of different forms of tribulation. And John notes specifically for his own life, I've been exiled to this island because of the testimony of the word of God and Jesus Christ. He was exiled as a punishment um, from the Roman uh, governing authorities. John was banished, therefore, from visiting these churches. He had no way of, of going to these churches because he had to remain on this island. And so John, therefore, resorted, resorted to a different form of communication, and it wasn't this letter to them. 
And what he's trying to do is he's trying to help them out of a dark period of oppression. When John speaks to Pergamon, for example, he notes that martyrdom has already occurred in the church, chapter 2 and verse 13. And when writing to Smyrna, uh, John uh, is preparing them for a persecution that's coming in verse, chapter 2 and verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you in prison that you may be tested. You will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and you will receive the crown of life. He's talking not some, of some kind of, of tribulation where we'll see if we can silence him for a bit. If it doesn't work, that's fine. He says, you persevere even to the point of death. And this persecution is in a direct association with them being Christians. There's a persecution attached to their identification with Jesus Christ. So where was all this persecution coming from? When John wrote the letter, Rome was in power. Not only does history teach us this through all historical books, but the Bible itself does. If you're jotting down notes, you can just take some of these uh, scripture references down. But in Acts chapter uh, 16, it talks about a region of Macedonia that was colonized. This is normal for the Romans. They colonized themselves all over the region. And uh, in Acts chapter 21, we hear that, or we read and understand that uh, Rome is in power of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 17, we find that Caesar is the rule of law. Many Christians, when we read the New Testament, we know about the Jews and the persecution from them, but this is coming from Roman rule. And John was exiled on this island for his faith, and these churches were undergoing martyrdom and imprisonment for being Christians under the Roman Empire. Leon Morris, in his commentary, he says this, the Roman Empire was, was wicked, oppression abounded, idolatry persisted, and the cult of the emperor flourished. And it's under these circumstances that the Christians were being persecuted. Ben Witherington also notes, he says, we have clear evidence of suffering, oppression, repression, suppression, and even martyrdom, occasional martyrdom. In short, these churches in Revelation were experiencing suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire for their Christian faith. Now, what's really curious about the way that John writes is he speaks about it more of the persecution underneath Satan and the devil than he does anything to do with Rome. Again, look back again there at chapter 2 and verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil. The devil is about to cast some of you in prison. The devil is about to cast some of you in prison. Is it the devil or is it a human institution? For John, they're the same. Or chapter 2 and verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold, you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful uh, witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Where Satan dwells. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't normally think about Satan and the devil this way. Has anybody known the devil to cast any people who are Christians into prison? Anybody know the devil when he's done that? Or Satan when he's done that, where Satan dwells on this earth? We don't talk in those terms. But that's the way John understands it. So if you were to ask somebody, let's say it's Smyrna, 
He says, you know, the devil's about to throw you into prison. Let's say that it was, you know, several months or we don't know how long it was afterwards. They'd been thrown into prison. And if you were to go ask them, say, well, what happened? You obviously made it through what happened. They would say, well, the devil threw us in prison. It's the Roman rulers, but it's understood as the devil. So although the Roman Empire was exercising their power, their wicked will on Christians, John sees it as the devil and Satan right there in Western Turkey actively going after Christians. This is really important. We're not talking about a future time where the devil is locked up and for a period of time he is released and be able to have his way. From John's perspective, Satan is right there. The devil is right there exercising his will. When we read about Satan or the devil being involved in active persecution, for John's perspective, it's not thinking about the devil and, and Satan being active in the future, at the end of time. This is going on right now. And this, of course, lines up with the rest of Scripture. Places like 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19. We know the whole world is in the power of the evil one. Now, this is outside of our framework. This is not the way we normally think. But in short, Satan or the devil was seen as directly doing harmful things to these Christians, as seen through the oppression and the persecution from the Roman Empire. Now, another critical piece of information when we're, when we're thinking about who wrote it and the audience is how often the Old Testament is quoted. Revelation, in the book of Revelation, the Old Testament is quoted more than any other New Testament book. Uh, ben Witherington, again, and he's quoting from uh, a lot of different sources, but he says this, of the 404 verses in Revelation, 278 contain a, an allusion or direct quotes from the Old Testament. That's 70% of the book. 70% of the book has some, either some allusion uh, to the Old Testament or direct quote from it. Therefore, if we're going to understand Revelation, we need to understand the Old Testament, especially some of the apocalyptic books like Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah. Without understanding that, without a, a good, thorough, working understanding of the Old Testament, it's very difficult to understand Revelation. Now, to illustrate this, I want uh, to read you a note this morning um, from Drew Bell. Um, he, uh, it's something that's very important uh, to him. He is unable to attend this morning, but he wanted you all to hear this, and uh, um, I, I join him in this. This is very important that you, that you hear and understand uh, this from Drew Bell. I write to you to confirm the importance of considering the LHV of RNG. It's at the forefront of the discussion when considering its application as a base for LNG production. Without knowing the applicable LHV, the, kilowatt, uh, the kilowatts of fuel consumed after regasification for the JGC 620J01 or the JMC 620J02 is impossible to, de to determine as the rate can widely flow differently depending on the HV. This lack of consumption data then makes the calculation of M3 LNG per day impossible. And therefore, the amount of bullet tanks and the ambient gasifiers required for the site will remain indeterminate, regardless of if the site is an N plus one or not. Without knowing the required flow, we're also not able to know the size of the CHP appropriately. If active gasification is required, nope, please, do not allow yourself to be confused with the HHV. This is not applicable within the application. 
Also be aware that the LHV values drop with the SCFM of consumed gas rises in the presence of siloxanes and other such impurities can increase dramatically within the combustion chamber of the precups. This, of course, leads to the silicate deposits in the unit and the premature failure will result. You guys can't understand what's going on. But this is Drew's communication. And Drew is communicating and he can communicate this to others within his field and they know exactly what he's talking about. So in his context, if Drew wants to write to this group of people, they know exactly what he's talking about. We can't understand that unless we go join Interflex and get the kind of education that Drew has. I'm saying all this to help you understand that if you read Revelation and you don't know the Old Testament, you don't understand where these quotes are coming from, you're going to be all kind, you're going to be confused like crazy. And I can tell you that I've been confused a lot. The more I understand the Old Testament, the more it comes to the forefront of really what's going on. This is really important for us. The Revelation churches, they knew the genre and they knew the Old Testament. And so they could understand what John was talking about. And unless we understand the genre and Old Testament quotes and the imagery and the metaphors, etc., that's going on, unless we understand that we're not going to be able to interpret correctly Revelation. Now, if 70% of the book are allusions or direct quotes from the Old Testament, we have to expect that the readers were acquainted with the Old Testament, enough to understand what was being written. Again, these churches had been around for a while. Access to the Old Testament and the scriptures would have been well known among these churches. Leon Morris accurately says it this way, those to whom it was written had to have a satisfying understanding of it. And so for these Revelation churches, you quote from the Old Testament, John, no problem, we understand what you're saying. Other imagery, no problem, we understand. We're the, we're the readers of it and you meant for us to understand it. But what if, what if John had another reason? What if John had another reason for speaking in this kind of way? Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Count of Monte Cristo. It is a fabulous, it's got all the elements I want in a movie. It's a prison escape, it's injustice, and guy triumphs over it, but then he ends up going too far and he's got to take it back. Oh, it's just a brilliant show. In Account of Monte Cristo, at the very beginning, it shows uh, Napoleon being exiled on this uh, island of Elba. And as he's on this island, the main character, he ends up at this island for some kind of emergency health reason, and uh, he meets Napoleon. And Napoleon says, hey, can you get this note to my guys on the mainland? And he says, yeah. And of course, this guy's kind of naive, can't read it, doesn't really know what's going on uh, in the letter at all because he couldn't read. And so because he didn't know what it read, he didn't know what was actually in it. But he hides it, and then he brings it to the mainland and delivers the letter. And of course, the letter was all about uh, the France and, and all about the, the way in which they're... Um, uh, holding Elba captive and their, and their, their different shifts, etc. And as a result, he ends up getting freed from France. But see, Napoleon couldn't get regular communication to the mainland. He had to use a different form of communication. What if John, through the inspiration of God, was deliberately using metaphors and Old Testament quotes for another purpose? Maybe to keep them hidden from the Roman captives. Because his communication is going to have to go from him somehow through some kind of middleman in order to get to the mainland. 
And what if this middleman was actually reading all the stuff in it to make sure it wasn't suspect? This is a hunch. Uh, one of the commentaries I read this last week, but I thought it was a good one. And if John wanted to denounce the institution of the emperor cult of Rome as coming from the devil, you don't spell that out. If he didn't want his captors to know it, especially because they're the middlemen of getting this letter to the mainland, maybe this is why God inspired John to use images, metaphors, and such strong Old Testament quotes. I can't say that for certain, but I'm telling you it makes a lot of sense to me. Ben Witherington notes in his commentary that Babylon is clearly Rome. Why not just flat out say this? Again, communication that would have been clear to his readers, but not so much to those. Can you imagine, you know, if they're intercepting this letter and they're starting to read about this dragon tail that's wiping out a third of the stars and all these horses roaming around and red and white and he's, you start reading it and the guy's like, I have no clue. And that actually is many of us as well. John, when he writes this, he also um, says this to the churches. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation was meant for specific ears who have ears to hear. It's right there at the end of chapter 2 and verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is after his direct communication to them. He says it again at the, at the end of chapter 3 and verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Kind of reminds you of the parables, doesn't it? Jesus communi communicating to the people. And he's trying to have clear communication, but it's only the people who really wanted to hear, really interested in what Jesus had to say, that could listen to what he was talking about. Maybe this is similar with the Revelation churches. He who has ears to hear. You see, Revelation is rooted in the historical situation in Western Turkey, where a band of these churches were experiencing persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire, who dominated the world at this time. And such persecution was actually at the direct hands of the devil or Satan. As such, there was pressure to conform to Satan. There was pressure to conform to the devil. But the Christians were to stand firm or be warned if they didn't. And such warnings are addressed to churches who could be tempted to identify with this now ungodly, worldly system in the control of Satan himself. Now sometimes I think because, you know, we read the first couple of, of, of chapters and we don't think like that, we think, well, then the whole rest of the book of Revelation has nothing to do with those early churches. But if you read it the way um, in which the devil and Satan are actively involved and persecution is actively happening to them, but God is winning the victory. It seems to make more sense that it doesn't end to the, to the churches at the end of chapter 3. It actually continues on. The communication to them continues on with application to them in their current context. In the book of Revelation, Satan is active. Persecution is persistent, but God is in control. That's not the theme of the first three chapters. That's the theme of the entire book. And it represents the current situation these Revelation churches are in. You can see why it's so important to understand the context. It's so important to understand this. And so I want to I give to you some lessons here before we, um, before we finish. 
And I, I recognize that uh, this is the second part of a two-part on an introduction. I, re I recognize that. Uh, but the introduction is really important in order for us to understand what's being taught in the book of Revelation. So first of all, Revelation is to be understood through the lens of its writer and audience before it's interpreted by 21st century Christians. This is a grave error we often make. We approach Revelation and we don't think about the writer, nor do we think about the audience. We think about what does God directly want to say on par with me right now in the 21st century. But if, unless you go back and understand what he's saying to those churches and who John is, you're not going to understand. Uh, secondly, to understand Revelation correctly, one must understand. Understand, understand twice. There you go. First of all, that Rome is currently in power and persecuting the Christian churches in Western Turkey. This is really important to understand. That Rome is currently in power and persecuting the Christian churches in Western Turkey. And there's the passages for you to jot down beside that. Secondly, to understand Revelation correctly, one must understand that John sees the devil and Satan actively involved in the persecution of the seven churches. He's not locked away somewhere. He's actively involved. He's himself, he's actually putting people in prison. Or when Satan dwells in 2.13, he's actually right there. This is really important to understand. Thirdly, um, to understand Revelation correctly, you must know that Revelation is written to Christians who have ears to hear. Ears to hear. And therefore may be cloaked to Roman understanding and other Christians with little knowledge. So if you're the Romans, you're not going to understand what's going on here. Or if you're Christians with little knowledge and you don't look and understand the Old Testament, you're not going to understand what he's talking about. So in that sense, it becomes somewhat cloaked. But it's written to Christians who do have ears to hear. Hear he who has ears to hear is the important thing there. And then finally, to understand Revelation correctly, one must understand the Old Testament scriptures as 70% of Revelation are allusions to or direct quotes from it. So, part two of an introduction. We haven't even begun Revelation yet. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through it. Um, but these, I think, are important pieces to begin with as we uh, begin our journey to walk through Revelation.